Hello, and welcome to the Nutritionist Therapy Podcast, brought to you by Nestle Health Science Canada. This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals for education purposes. I'm your host, Bethany Hopkins, Medical Affairs Manager with Nestle Health Science. Today we'll be talking with Anton Emanuel, MD, about enteral nutrition intolerance, its prevalence, impact, and approaches to assessment. Dr. Emanuel is an academic neurogastroenterologist at University College London and consultant gastroenterologist at University College Hospital and the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery at Queen Square. His clinical work encompasses being director of the GI Physiology Unit at University College Hospital, as well as providing a gastroenterology service at Queen Square. Dr. Emanuel's research includes basic gut neurophysiology and the study of the pathophysiology and management of gastrointestinal disorders of the upper and lower gut in neurological disease and functional conditions. He is the editor of the journal Frontline Gastroenterology. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Emanuel. As a neurogastroenterologist, you're involved in the management of many individuals receiving enteral nutrition. And today we'll be talking about enteral nutrition intolerance, which can be a serious issue for some tube-fed patients, one that can have an impact on their quality of life, as well as delivery of adequate nutrition hydration, and the use of healthcare resources. I'd like to start by having you describe what the term enteral intolerance means to you as a clinician. The term is kind of an umbrella term, and I think from my perspective, it really refers to patients' individual symptoms. That's what I'm invested in, is somebody's got a set of complaints, what can I do to to find a solution to that? Uh, And recognizing that underneath that umbrella, there are countless symptom presentations, which are really the primary way in which we should be addressing these patients. So how common is it? Now, if you if you talk to someone like me on my own, I would say to you, enormously common because the patients that I get referred are by definition those who have symptoms. But if you talk to colleagues in the in the field who are seeing patients uh, in the community type setting, they would say upwards of 50 to 60% of patients have this problem of not tolerating their tube feed. In a hospital setting, it'd be a tiny bit higher, but it's certainly, I think if you say a conservative estimate of 50% plus, you'd be on safe ground. Now, the fact is that the other thing, apart from that range of severities, also is the fact that there are people there at that milder end of the spectrum who sort of self-manage. They work out that adjusting their position or timing it half an hour after this or before their bowel uh, action means that they can manage their symptoms. But of that half, probably at least a half, find it a really limiting symptom which they need help with and that's where the professional can come in and we can discuss ways in which they can make small adjustments uh, and try and assess the patient in the first instance and then make those adjustments to to improve function. Now I know sometimes these GI symptoms may be, may be considered by some clinicians or, or some patients and families to be a normal or expected part of tube feeding so we hear people say sometimes that what's liquid going in is going to be liquid coming out, or it's natural to have a full belly and a bit of nausea or reflux in someone who's receiving a tube feeding. And can you comment on you know, whether some of these GI symptoms should be considered a normal part of enteral feeding? Absolutely, that's a really key issue, and I think that's certainly something which comes with training. I think at the start of one's career, one tends to assume that, and that you know these are sick people, what do you expect? But I would say it's absolutely wrong 
to accept that as our standard. It may be that we have to, res- if we can't fix it, we have to try and counsel the patient. So I'm not saying we should ignore that part of it, but it's absolutely essential we make the effort to understand the cause of these symptoms. So no, it's absolutely not okay to say that this is acceptable, it's what you should expect. Just because you are being tube fed, the whole point of this in most people is to improve quality of life. For some it's to establish a stable new normal, but in any event, if you're trying to improve quality of life, that doesn't mean adding symptoms, it means minimizing those. So no, we are really very invested in the idea of of disillusioning the patient and our colleagues sometimes um, that this is what's normal. So just picking up on the concept of quality of life that you mentioned, in terms of the impact of intolerance on patients and caregivers, clinicians, healthcare resources, you know, what sort of impact have you seen in your practice and with your colleagues? At the most extreme end, we have patients who decide or have it decided for them to discontinue their feeding because their symptoms are so intolerable. And, you know, it's not as any of us go into a tube feeding program thinking, oh, well, we'll give it a go. It's a sort of small issue. This is always a big decision made in a large group by the patient and their family and by the professionals and their uh, multidisciplinary group. So, you know, that's a reflection of how serious this is because then you move up the ladder towards much more invasive intravenous options and that's never an easy decision either so you know this is this is not a trivial issue for some people and uh, there are as i say a minority who are at the mild end of the spectrum who can self-manage and what we're hoping is that we can help the professionals to recognize small things they can do uh, which sometimes are slightly counterintuitive sometimes if a patient is complaining of symptoms of heartburn or vomiting sometimes actually need to think about lower down the the gut as a cause of symptoms so it's really opening our eyes to try and find solutions to reduce the impact because this is a big deal for patients and we also know that if you look at the quality of life data that's published on patients with long-term tube feeding whilst the averages when you're on feeding improve so patients with a high level of dissatisfaction improve with tube feeding within that improved group there's a real spectrum there as well so there are some patients who actually are no different and some who are dramatically different and we're after trying to make everyone in that second group of people who are dramatically improved. So on that note what can be done then to help tube fed individuals experiencing GI symptoms so where does the clinician begin with their assessment when they're presented with someone that has symptoms. So you've made the key point there, if I can say that, which is to assess the patient, not just to assume that immediately if they've reported a symptom, that's the only thing. These patients, we believe there's sort of six or seven symptoms in families that can be considered. So if we take this in a sort of practical sense, there's the upper GI family of symptoms, which we would consider as being reflux type symptoms, nausea and or vomiting type symptoms and um, that sensation of early satiety so quickly after the tube feeding starts they feel full then there's a sort of the, the general abdominal symptoms which are more to do with abdominal pain and bloating and then the last family are the so the lower GI symptoms the diarrhea and the constipation side of things so if we take that as a whole, your assessment begins by recognizing that that six or seven set of symptoms can coexist. And actually the cause of one may be something else. And one of the prior 
symptoms that is really key to this is constipation. So it's really key from our point of view that patients have an assessment of their bowel function made. This can be some, somewhat intrusive and embarrassing at times, but trying to get as much of a carer or patient history to look at not just frequency, but sort of degree of completeness, how long it's taking, because sometimes patients find that they don't like talking about these kind of personal embarrassing symptoms. So they say, oh, it's all fine, it's all fine, but actually what you're finding is that they're sort of accelerating their toilet training and habit just to get it out of the way and never fully voiding. So there's a lot of hidden constipation out there, and it's easier to talk about vomiting and nausea than just to talk about our bowels not working. So we need to be prepared to explore that a bit with our patients. Then for vomiting specifically, we're really keen on the idea of uh, keeping a vomiting diary to ask the patient or the carer just to keep a little note on paper or on their smartphone of when it's occurring in relationship to their meals, in relation to their exertion, in relation to getting out of bed, to end of feeding, just to make a note of roughly when it's occurring, but also sort of how much is coming up and what it looks like. Because... It sounds a bit unpleasant, but actually patients, in our experience, don't mind doing that. It, they feel like it's getting to the root of where their problem is to see what it's like out of that setting when they're seeing you face-to-face for that 10 minutes. And so and it, we find it's a very helpful way, an analysis later on of looking at you notice something that when you've had your second day without a bowel action, that's when your vomiting is worse, or when you've been put the feed on straight away, maybe we should slow it down or whatever. So we often find little, little clues in the vomiting diary. Um, and beyond that, we um, we then would so very much talk around um, ruling out systemic things. So it's not uncommon for people to have low-grade sepsis as part of the reason why they need feeding or other systemic inflammation. And sometimes once somebody starts feeding, it becomes easy to blame the feed for everything. So any sort of low-grade chest or urine infection, so, oh, well, that, that's, the nausea must be the feed. Well, actually, it may just be a UTI that's developed along the way, which we're not taking, taking care of. Um, uh, and so within that, then the, if there's no constipation, and no infection, we then start looking at thinking about other causes that may be there. So checking the position of the feed tube is a key first thing, which I'm sure most of the listeners will already do. Considering the patient posture when they're feeding, are they slouched, are they slumped in their bed? Is it being done in some strange angle with the tube being tethered and stretched because the layout of their room isn't a funny one. Um, consider whether the symptoms are occurring related to medications they're taking or with feeding. So is there reflux or pain occurring shortly after they've taken a dose of their, say, Parkinson's medication or their multiple sclerosis medication or whatever else. Um, and then it's worth considering whether the um, in relationship to their medications, whether the volume of feed we're giving them is excessive. Sometimes we may need to change feed volume and concentration just to accommodate their drugs if those drugs can't be can't be corrected. So it's really about excluding the systemic things, constipation priority, but also the other infection and inflammatory things that can go on. Then looking for very specific feed-related things in terms of the mechanics of feeding. And those will help us in our assessment of the upper GI um, sort of symptoms. So if we then consider that sort of middle set of um, symptoms, the epigastric pain and the abdominal um, bloating or discomfort, from our perspective there's a kind of dichotomous way of looking at this. One is, is there a functional cause or is there an organic cause? And in organic causes, one of the things that we see as often a hidden issue is this question of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. 
Now, SIBO, as it's known, is a situation where the small intestine, which as you know is normally sterile, can get colonized by bacteria because of the slow movement of content or the abnormal feeding we're giving it and therefore the change in immunity. And in that situation, especially if the patient is taking a drug like a proton pump inhibitor to reduce acid and secretion, in that situation, that's quite a good environment for bacteria to grow. They've got lots of lovely nutrients. They've got not much acid to fight. Uh, they've got a slow moving gut and they can take over and they can really be a significant cause of bloating and discomfort and pain for patients. And thinking about that and the hallmark symptoms would be things like bad breath being noticed, episodic diarrhea, this abdominal cramping and discomfort and bloating that's there. And if that's present, it's worth thinking about whether bacterial overgrowth is there. It can be tested for reasonably easily with something called a hydrogen breath test. Uh, alternatively, we, we may just choose to treat somebody empirically and say, well, that's what it sounds like. All the features are there. Let's give you a course of, you know, five days of five to seven days of antibiotic to eradicate that and see whether the symptoms improve. And if it does, then that may need repeating in months or years time after that. And of course, beyond that, there are gallstones are a real issue. You know, gallstones affect as many as one in four people. And amongst the tube fed population, it's slightly higher than that even because of the relationship with reduced mobility and inflammation ongoing. And if the patient has any inflammatory bowel disease as part of their cause for why they're being fed, that makes it especially likely if they're female, if they've had many children. These are all risk factors of gallstones. And they'll present often in a rather unusual way. You know, the classical presentations we're used to in healthy individuals may be a bit different. So it's worth thinking about that. Similarly, things like peptic ulcers, hiatus hernias, these are all common conditions. And in patients who are being tube fed, they can present in unusual ways. And I say it's important that we don't assume everything in a tube fed patient is due to their, their enteral feed. So there's those organic causes. And then for these sort of mid-abdominal symptoms, there's also the functional causes, which we would consider things like gastroparesis. Um, as the key one of those and gastroparesis is a, is a sort of funny term it implies that kind of that condition where the stomach doesn't empty properly but we know it's a bit more complex than just emptying it's also a question sometimes of the patient's not having a stomach which accommodates the meal which holds on to the feed well enough so it doesn't stretch in the normal physiological way to hold on to content and if it does doesn't stretch then obviously that's going to cause discomfort because you have a stiff stomach which isn't being allowed to distend and of course, if it doesn't empty, then you get the those upper symptoms I was mentioning in terms of nausea and vomiting. But it's worth thinking about that gastroparesis, which may not present simply with vomiting. It may present with discomfort and bloating as a real feature because of this, we would say, kind of vagal involvement. You get the stiff stomach, which then makes your vagus activated, which makes your tummy distend. So it's, you know, gastroparesis, which is sort of underlying everything we said about upper GI presentations, may cause pain and the like. So it's important not just to assume it's only vomiting, it can also be pain. And if we move finally then to the kind of lower GI symptoms, the kind of diarrhea and constipation. Obviously, as I've said now a few times, and hope I'm not making myself repetitive, constipation is a really key thing to assess. Our estimate of prevalence would say that something like 65 to 70 percent of patients on a tube feed regime are constipated. So it's really important to assess that, whether by taking a careful sort of history from the patient and from the carers, but also from what actually happens in the bathroom. And this may be something we feel uncomfortable about. So if I spend the next one minute trying to explain how to approach that, I hope you don't mind. It's really trying to get the clinician to feel comfortable differentiating between what we'd consider slow transit, where the 
content moves slowly through the intestine uh, and that is really the hallmark by the fact that the stools are rather hard and pellety or that the call to open your bowels is very infrequent once every couple of days so that people only feel the urge to go every couple of days and they have hard stools when they do go that's more transit problem versus the alternative family which is an evacuation problem where they get in that urge to go they're getting the need to go the stools are normal but when they try to pass them they just can't they get discomfort pain they have to strain they feel a bit gassy they bloat they don't feel like they can empty very easily they have to help themselves sometimes these are questions which are often hard to ask a patient but just gradually allowing them to talk will often reveal that history and of course sometimes patients have both symptoms so really assessing the constipation number one for its presence and number two for which type transit versus evacuation or both is really key and if we finally consider diarrhea and how we assess the patient who has diarrhea, of course everyone tends to think, as you said earlier on, that everyone with liquid in means liquid out. But it's actually a minority of patients, happily, who have diarrhea because diarrhea is a pretty distressing symptom. Often, given the physical uh, problems patients have, getting to a bathroom in time can be difficult. And actually, a lot of what people are describing is problems with bowel control and continence. So actually, what people call diarrhea may be a continence problem. What people call diarrhea may be an overflow problem. You know, we remember this from our years in, in training that patients with constipation can get this kind of impaction and overflow. And even without full-blown impaction, people can get some soiling and overflow from there. So what is considered diarrhea, again, needs careful exploration. Um, and then we need to think about whether this could be an IBS-type problem, which, again, you know, just because you have a tube feed doesn't mean you, you don't have a problem which is a common functional thing like like IBS um, and of course one other thing which is often overlooked especially in our older patients with tube feeding is that they present with diarrhea but what they actually have is a rectal prolapse and this is something which is very hard to talk about but especially in our female patients who've had children when they've strained their pelvic floor this can be an issue in the older female patient and what they're getting is a bit of tissue coming down and again they, they don't even aware of it themselves but it causes them to lose tools so there's a number of things I'd like us to think about when we consider patients as having diarrhea or constipation it isn't a simple what's written on the tin it needs a tiny bit more detail of opening up the case a bit. I mean it's clear from what you've been talking about that you know certainly these GI symptoms um, the multifactorial, the causes, and you, we can't make assumptions that an upper GI symptom is not related to something that's happening further down in the gut. So thank you very much for providing that perspective on intolerance. And as we've mentioned, it is a real concern for tube-fed individuals and those involved with their care. We'll continue this conversation on our next podcast where we'll have you address the management concerns for some of these symptoms that you've talked about assessing. So I'd like to thank you, Dr. Emanuel, for joining us and thank all of our listeners. This concludes this episode of the Nutrition as Therapy podcast. Please check out our website at nestlehealthscience.ca for more information. For the Nestle Health Science podcast team, I'm Bethany Hopkins. <laughs>